I don't know if you've uh, been watching the news recently, but for the last number of months, it's been particularly stressful for those who are looking to buy a home or rent an apartment. It's um, uh, been very, very difficult. And to be honest, part of that is simply because right now it's a seller's market. Uh, sellers are able to uh, get into bidding wars for people who want their homes or apartments and the prices just seem to be going up and up and up and it's, so it's it's an incredibly stressful time but thinking back to the times when I was looking for a home or my wife and I were looking for an apartment I can't think of a time that doing that wasn't stressful because that's a major decision to decide where you're going to live for the next number of months and years I think buying a home or finding an apartment is one of the most stressful things today. I remember when we were uh, looking, when we first moved to the United States from Canada, we were coming from Toronto to Albany, New York, and we were looking around, and uh, it was just an odd experience in some of the homes that we went to. In one place, the homeowner never left during the home tour. They stayed there. And they followed my wife and I and the real estate agent around apologizing for the state of the home, which was awkward to say the least. However, what made it most awkward to me was that we noticed that their apology for, oh, this is, you know, I'm sorry that the way this is, uh, the way, I'm sorry for the way that this house is. I'm sorry the house is the way that it is. I don't think it was true at all. Because as my wife and I were looking through the kitchen, we did what normal people do, and we opened up the cabinets to see how much space we could have. And we noticed that at the back of the cabinet was matted dog hair. Now, I am confident that the woman did not take her dogs and put them in the cabinets in order, you know, overnight. Like, that's not where she put her animals. Like, there were dishes in there. But behind the dishes, behind the cups, behind the mugs was matted dog hair. I think this woman needed to do more than apologize for the state of her home. In another home, when we were looking in Albany, or when we were looking in Toronto, when we were first uh, getting married, the plan was that uh, Krista would move out of uh, her home with her parents and uh, live in the apartment where we would begin our lives together. And then once we got married, I would move out of my apartment and join her. So we were looking all around the town of Newmarket where we lived, which was a suburb, uh, sort of a bedroom community of, of Toronto. And one of the places we found, it seemed great in the listing, advertised lots of space, wide open concept, uh, big giant bedroom. And we went to go down the stairs into the basement and realized that we couldn't stand up straight. The ceiling was so low in the basement that we were doing this the whole time. Now, I, being 6'3", Krista being six feet, Krista was bending her uh, head like this, barely having enough room, and I was going around like this the whole time. Guess how long we stayed looking at that apartment? Just long enough to figure out how do we turn around without hurting ourselves and let's get out of here as quickly as possible. It was, it was nuts. It was, 
Like, we know that we're tall people. As I said, my wife's six feet, and she's the shortest person in our family. Like, it would have been amazing for someone who was average height to get into that home and not feel like the ceiling had fallen down on them. I didn't understand why these people would consider renting their basement as a basement apartment for, for anyone. I think it's stressful to find a home that has everything that you want and everything that you need. Is that true? Has that been your experience as well? If that's been your experience online, let us know in chat. Just type, yep, that's my experience. Or if you had a really simple experience, you can, you can say that as well. But I think there's a second reason why looking for a home, buying a home or finding an apartment is incredibly stressful. It's hard enough to find everything you want in a home, right? It's hard enough to find all of the things that you'd like. It's even more difficult. It's just as stressful because there are things that you don't want in your next home, right? Like, you know that I don't want the dog hair. I don't want other things. There was one place my wife was telling me last night as we were talking about the message, getting ready for this morning. She was sharing that uh, it was a place where only she and our real estate agent went to. Uh, I was not there. It was back, again, back in Albany when we were still looking. And both the real estate agent and Krista thought it was really odd that the owner had painted over wallpaper. It's not normal to do that. As a matter of fact, that's one of the sins. That's one of the seven deadly sins of home ownership. Don't paint over wallpaper. I think wallpaper is one of the seven. That's the first deadly sin. The fact that you painted over it is just cruel. Anyways, they were wondering why would someone do that? And as they kept wandering through the house, it dawned on them because they realized from odors and from the way they were reacting that the person was a, probably a lifelong smoker. And as a way to cover up the, uh, the smell of smoke that gets everywhere, she didn't replace, do the hard work of replacing sheetrock and painting it, like ripping it down to the studs and changing what she needed to change. Instead, she just painted over the wallpaper, or they just painted over the wallpaper. It makes it hard to buy a home, not only because you're looking for things that may not exist in the home that you're looking at, but you're also worried that there's things that you don't want that are in that apartment or in that home. I think that's one of the reasons why we insist and why I'm so glad that it's a law, actually, that you get home inspection, right? One of the deals that has to happen is that an inspector will come and will ask, uh, will ask the questions on your behalf and look at all of the systems that you may not notice on your home tour. You may not know what to look for. I think that's critical. I know a lot of homes today are being sold sight unseen, and people are waiving the inspection. I, 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 I can't imagine doing that in the right frame of mind because you want a home so badly. Because when you get surprised... It is the worst feeling about not having the home of your dreams and you have to replace something that if you had known was there, if you had known that was a problem, you would have gone ahead and said, hey, listen, we need to talk about this. This item needs to be replaced or the price needs to come down. We need to negotiate in order to have fair compensation for something that we don't want in the home. When we bought our home in Albany, we had a home inspector. 
and the home inspector did not do a very good job. They missed a lot of things. And we ended up paying thousands and thousands of dollars to repair the things that we knew we had to fix in our home. I think inspection is necessary. Not because it's stressful not to have inspection, but it's because we want to have the best home possible. When we're making a purchase of something this important, we want to make sure that it has the things we want, and we want to make sure it doesn't have the things that we don't want. That's if you want to have the best home possible. What about family? What do we do, what is necessary, if we want to have the best family possible? I think the challenges for families today are actually fairly universal, no matter where you go around the world. There's time management challenges. How are we going to balance everyone's schedule? There's household management. Who's going to take care of what in the home? There's finances. What are you going to do to earn enough money to pay off the home that you just bought? What are you going to do to provide for your family? What are you going to do to provide for your family's physical needs, their emotional needs, their mental needs? What are you going to do for their education? How are you going to parent? How are you going to raise your kids? How are you going to stay close as a family? What are you going to build into your family that keeps your spouse and your kids close? And how are you going to handle disagreements? How are you going to handle conflicts? How are you going to handle problems that need to be solved? That's the reason we've started this whole series and how we're really getting into the, I think, the meat and potatoes of the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. The, the letter of Colossians is that kind of a letter that shows us, here's how we have those things, but so far everything's been really abstract and, and kind of big, big, big picture without, uh, we're missing a lot of concrete application. We've learned so far, if you've been with us through the series, and if you haven't, we've got most of the messages online. I'm a little behind on posting some of the recordings, but hopefully this week we'll get to that. But we've learned that building our lives on Jesus, a gospel-centered life, is really the point of life because of who Jesus is. Jesus is supreme over all creation. He is the creator of all creation. He sustains it, he supports it, and he's going to redeem it. You will not find a greater name, a greater person than Jesus, and you can do nothing better with your life than build your life on Jesus. And the way that we do that is to set our minds on him, on things above, because Jesus is above everything we see and everything we know. So where do we begin with that? How do we begin to build a Jesus-first mindset? Well, it's interesting that it seems kind of mundane that Paul would then say, it begins in the home. This is where you start. So what does that look like? What does that look like if we begin to build a Jesus-first mindset in our homes? How can Christians 
develop a Jesus-first mindset in their homes. Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to just a few short verses. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. And if you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along with me on the screen because we are going to jump into some real concrete, foundational meat and potatoes application that you and I can use to develop a Jesus-first mindset in our families. Take a look. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. In order to understand why Paul would say these things, we have to kind of think back and pretend in our mind what it would have been like to be a family unit at the time Paul was writing this letter. Because the families that we have now today are nothing like the families that were in ancient Greece and Rome, especially in the city of Colossae where Paul was writing. So let's unpack these a little bit. Four things that different roles and different responsibilities are given to different members of an immediate family. The first thing Paul says is that wives should submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I don't like the fact that Paul started here because we don't like the word submit. And quite frankly, wives don't like the word submit because of the way that it has been used in the past. So let's unpack this a little bit. The word choice here that Paul uses in the original languages is not a statement of superiority. It is not a statement of authority. It is simply a statement of willingness. It is a statement of, this is an act that I am going to do. It is a voluntary attitude of cooperation. It is not a statement of inferiority. The way this has been interpreted in times past was that uh, that means that men are the lord of their castle, right? The lord of the manor. They're the head of the house. And that's true in, in a spiritual responsibility sense. But it's not true in a sense of that makes one person more important than the other. Because Paul says, look, you have a master, so submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. The husband's not the master of the house. Jesus is. And wives can submit out of their relationship with Jesus, who is the head of their home, to submit to their husband. Now, that was, commonly, uh, that was culturally common in those days. That's how wives and husbands related to each other, that's, or that's how wives related to their husbands in those days. It needed no further explanation. That's what everyone did. But the next thing that Paul says needs a little bit more unpacking for us, because he says, husbands, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So what's he saying there? 
What he's saying is that husbands need to sacrificially and gently love their wives. There was a major difference as to why you got married in the ancient world, especially in Rome. The reason why you got married was not for love. You did not get married for love. You got married to produce heirs. Think of cultures around the world that have arranged marriages where someone says, I'm going to marry this person. The parents then give a bit of an interview to say, this person is qualified or unqualified to marry you because they are protecting the name. They're protecting the heritage of the family. This is very similar. The only reason a man and a woman got married in Roman culture was to have kids that would continue the family line. And they would do it so that maybe someone married up a step or two. Maybe someone uh, didn't overreach and marry and destroy a family name. They wouldn't allow that. So that was the only reason they got married. And so all of the other things that we say why people should get married were not existent. As a matter of fact, if you were looking for physical intimacy, you wouldn't turn to your spouse. You'd turn to a mistress or a concubine. Or you'd go to a temple. And that's how you would worship in a pagan service. Your wife was just there to provide kids. And that was it. So what Paul says here is fascinating. As a matter of fact, I read while I was thinking about this passage, I was doing some reading and uh, someone said that it was likely that over time, you, uh, it was uh, proven over time that uh, you would see on epitaphs and different inscriptions of Roman times that there were some men who loved their spouses, but it was actually just as equally common to find this lovely sentiment, this wonderful hallmark moment. She never gave me any reason to complain. I don't think you'll find that in any Hallmark store today. Where's the, well, you know, you didn't make me, you know, cranky, so that's a good thing. You know, we got a good marriage going on. You'll never see that in counseling. You'll never see that. This is just so foreign to us that that would be the way that marriage was. But that's what Paul was starting with. And so he says, husbands, love your wives, sacrifice for them, and do it gently. And I think the two go in hand in hand. Wives submitting to their husbands, husbands gently loving their wives in this way, sacrificing for them. As someone said, wives submit to the love of their husbands, not their tyranny. Becomes easier as the two work hand in hand. And they are to do it without becoming embittered. Disagreement, arguments, resistance, those things happen. Those things are part of every marriage that I know of. But the way that people respond in them matters. Does not change the call that God has put on husbands to give up their rights, to sacrifice for their wives, and to do so in a way that they don't hold grudges. And they don't belittle them, they don't embarrass them, they don't nag them, none of that. 
So it was pretty common for wives to submit to their husbands in those days. Not much explanation, but husbands. Husbands didn't make it easy. They just used what the legal rights that they had as the lord of the manor to enforce submission. And Paul says there's a better way, there's a motive that needs to be created here where you sacrifice, where you give up your rights for the rights of your spouse, caring for her emotional needs, her physical needs, her financial needs, her relational needs. You provide those things. You sacrifice and give up your rights to do so. And then it gets even more interesting because of what he says for children, right? He says for children to obey their parents in everything. Now, parents love that verse. I mean, that's the verse when they, yep, that's it. That's the one. That's what we need. And the Bible says, you know, you need to obey. But here's the interesting thing about what it would have meant to hear those words as a child in a church, in the church of Colossae. A child was the legal property of the father. And they were um, able to be sold. They were able to be discarded of. They were able to be put into service even after they got married. The father had that much control over them. And this is what Paul does. Did you notice he directly addresses the children? He doesn't speak to the fathers saying, you know, tell your kids to obey you. He doesn't speak to the mothers saying, kids, or moms, tell your kids that they have to obey you. He directly addresses them. It's really odd for Paul to do that because children had no legal standing until they had some kind of value to society. And we live in such a kid-centric society where we focus everything on our children. We, one of our great, you know, panic statements is won't somebody please think of the children right like it's not won't somebody please think of the seniors it's always won't somebody please think of the children it was actually the opposite back then everything they did was for seniors everything they did was for those who had gone through society and had wisdom and had stature and had some kind of gravitas in society kids were nothing in those days and yet paul addresses them directly and says kids obey your parents not because it pleases your parents, but because it pleases God. And Paul subtly, just in a genius way, reminds them again of who's in charge of the home. It's not mom, it's not dad, but it's Jesus who is in charge. Oh, and, and dads, don't make your children resent you. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Because fathers had that sole legal right over the kids, many fathers treated their children as things rather than as family. So you can see how discipline would have been used where it was, I'm going to make you do what I want. But what Paul says in the Christian home is that discipline changes. It changes from, I'm going to make you do what I want as your parent, to I am going to use this as a way to develop 
you. And so all of a sudden, the father goes from the most important person in the home who has all of this legal authority and legal right to your legal right before God is to sacrifice for your wives and sacrifice for your kids and to build them into everything God wants them to be. Paul gives those specific things. The challenge is that we have different family things that we've developed over the years as a, as a nation that's been profoundly impacted by Christianity and the importance of the home and the importance of family and the importance of marriage. A lot of these things are things that we just automatically go, yes and amen, where's lunch? Like, we can go home now and we're done and that's, that's the service for today. But what interests me about this passage is I think Paul is, again, just a genius, genius writer. Because there's something that connects all of these things together in an attitude, in a motive that is not described in the text but is implicit in what Paul says has to happen in order for any of these things to happen, for wives to submit to their husbands, for husbands to uh, uh, sacrificially love their wives, being gentle with them, the kids to obey their parents, for all of that to happen, there has to be something as a motive. And there is one that ties it all together. There's a common theme. If you look at all of these things again, can we see them up uh, just one more time? Submitting loving, obeying, don't embittering them, don't discourage them. There's one common thing together. Thank you. There's one common thing, and that is respect. We develop a Jesus-first mindset in our families when we show respect to our family members. When at the root of everything that we do for them is a respect of who they are in Christ. All these commands are based on the immediate, on respecting the immediate members of the family. It's about dismantling old systems of, this is what's in it for me, this is what you can do for me, this is how you scratch my back, and then I'm going to scratch yours. It pushes those all away and says, everyone has a role, everyone has a responsibility depending who you are in the marriage or in the relationship and in the family, but... It all starts with respect. And that means that if we're going to have a Christ-first family, it means we need to respect one another in our family, whether they choose to act Christ-like or not. Because it doesn't depend on what they do for you, it depends on what Christ has already done for you. These commands don't tell us how to run our families. They give us the motive behind building our families. As we've talked, as we've shared, as we learned last week, Jesus is the only one that doesn't just change how we act, but he, changed the motive, he changes the motive behind why we act. There was a number of years ago when we first moved into the parsonage, seven, seven and a half years ago now that I think about it, almost, almost eight coming this fall, um, 
beautiful backyard that we loved, but the patio door was really, really hard to move. It often got stuck, and Krista would struggle with it, trying to get enough leverage to open the patio door, and Josh was 10 years old. He wasn't moving the, the patio door at all, and sometimes I'd have to go over and get two hands on it and give it a good pull. It was, it was really tough. A lot of friction, a lot of dirt had built up over time. So we took the door off. We looked at the track, we looked at the wheels, cleaned them out as much as we could. We put the door back on, and it still didn't work. Someone suggested, have you tried silicone spray? And I said, do you mean like WD-40? He said, no, 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 silicone spray. You want to make sure you have the right grease for the job. And I went, no, I haven't. So we went to Home Depot, we bought an overpriced can of silicone spray, and we took just a little bit, because that's what we were told. You don't have to use a lot, just a little bit on the wheel, a little bit on the track where you think it's sticking, because a little bit goes a long way. We spray it on every spring now. We clean out the track, we take a look at the wheel to make sure it's still a wheel, because sometimes they can disintegrate. And every spring, it just makes that door open so that I think if we look at it wrong, whoosh, the door opens. It's just so easy to move now, all because just a little bit of grease, a little bit of silicone spray goes a long way. Isn't that true? You get the right kind of grease for the right kind of stuck thing in life, and it just fixes it right up. I use an electric razor because I'm lazy. I don't like to have to always put on shaving cream and use a blade and get it hot enough. I just, you know, electric razor, you can walk around and go, yeah, that feels close enough. And, you know, uh, there's not much to work with anyways, so I'm not trying to impress anyone. So uh, I just, you know, shave all that off. On occasion, I can feel like, man, the razor is really grabbing today, like it's pulling skin. It's really rough. And at that point, I know that it's time to oil the blades, and I'll grab some, some mineral oil or something that the razor company has sent me, or a blade wash specifically to lubricate the razor blades. Maybe you have some tools in your shed or in your basement or in your garage that have built up some rust over time. They've built up some debris, and that's when you will get some uh, penetrating lubricant, something that... Uh, is WD-40, so that it can deal with those spots of rust and all of that gunk and debris that builds up. My point is this, that's what respect is. A little bit of respect towards your family members goes a long way in lubricating the relational junk that can build up over time. And in some situations, just like the, spout, the, the wife submits to her husband, that's a special kind of lubricant in the, in, the, in the family. Just like the husband sacrificially loves and is gentle with his wife and has to do that, that's a special kind of lubricant for the special task that he has. The kids obeying their parents, that's a special kind of lubricant. It's just a little bit goes a long way. And it helps lubricate the areas of friction in our families, resisting the heat and the stuff that gums up the way we relate to each other. And this kind of respect that we have because of Jesus allows us to be respectful of the people that we spend the most time with in all of our lives. 
Isn't it true that familiarity sometimes breeds contempt? It's hard to live with our families sometimes because we spend so much time with them. They get to see us, you know, without projecting who we are to the public. I remember there was a famous Christian comedian a number of years ago who told a story about his mom. His mom could be yelling at them, like just yelling at them because they were misbehaving as boys do. And she says, you don't know what you're doing to me. And, and she's just yelling, like, stop it, knock it off. And the phone rings. And you just wait till your father gets home and, hello, oh, it's so good to hear, right? And you're just like, how did that happen? How did that, like, we have a projection of who we want to be with people who don't know us. But the people who do know us, whew, we can be a little rough around the edges with them. That's, the, that's why Paul starts with, and that's why God starts with, if we want to have a Jesus first life, if we want to build a gospel-centered life on the truth of who Jesus is, then it starts with the people who know us the best, the people in our family. Now, I know you're asking, but I think respect is a two-way street. How do we respect people who don't deserve being respected? What if they do something to us? What if they hurt us? And they don't deserve respect. This is the genius of the gospel. Because our primary relationship, as we have just been reminded so subtly by Paul, is not with our family. We don't worship our family. We weren't saved by our family. There's only one way that we are saved. There's only one person that we worship. And that is Jesus. And this is what Jesus thinks about you. Jesus respects you. Jesus respects you in spite of who you are, in spite of sin, in spite of ways that you failed him. He respects you. He values you and he loves you. To him, you are precious. And here's the amazing truth of the gospel. With Jesus, we are already secure. We are already worthy. We are already valid. We are already attractive. We are already important. And we are already victorious. In him, we already have enough. And we already are enough. That's the respect that he has given you. That is the confidence that you have from being a follower of Christ in the first place. And so that is why you can show respect. And that is why I think only Christians can show respect when other people don't respect them or haven't earned respect in return. Now hear me well. That doesn't mean you can't stand up for yourself, defend yourself, speak for yourself, and get help for yourself when you're in dangerous family situations. But like we said last week, our relationship with Jesus changes everything about us. It changes our appetites so that we're not indulging in and feeding sinful appetites and desires. It also allows us to show people the grace that we've received and act like his representative, meaning that just because someone or some situation treats you unfairly, that does not mean that that's the end it could mean that it's just the beginning of God doing something amazing. That's the kind of God that we have. 
God can work all things and does work all things together for good for those that love him. And Jesus can help us show respect even when we've been disrespected by the people that we're closest to because Jesus has already given us all the respect that we need. We build Jesus-first families when we choose to respect the people in our family. So here's something I'd like you to do. Before we go today, just between you and the Lord is to either take out your phone or take out something to write with or just to consider this question. But don't, don't leave today. Don't close the browser today before you answer this question in your mind. I want you to think of the people in your immediate family. If you're living with your parents, then your parents. If you're married, then your spouse. If you've got kids, then your kids. I want you to think about those relationships and I want you to answer this question. This week, I will show and communicate my respect to name of family member by, let's all say that together, this week, I will show and communicate my respect to name of family member by, and what are you going to do? How are you going to show them? How are you going to tell them that you deeply respect who they are? How will you do that in a way that truly does communicate it? It doesn't have to be big because it's like silicone spray. Just a little bit goes a long way. I want to give you some time. Krista, come on up. We're going to close in prayer in a second. But I want to give you a time just to think about how you would answer that question because I want to give this to you for homework this week. I want to give this to you for you to do in your marriage with your kids, or with your parents. This week, I will show and communicate respect by. And then choosing that and doing that. I want to give you a moment to do that. And then we're going to close in prayer. A little bit of respect goes a long way. So let's bow our heads in prayer. And let's ask Jesus to help us answer this question and to respect those in our family. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to be with us now, be with us online. Lord, would you give us wisdom to respect those in our family, to show it, to communicate it, Lord, we live in a me-first, individualistic culture where in some ways it is common, it is normal practice to be a family-oriented person. But sometimes our families make that hard and sometimes our own desires make that hard. But this is a place where the world changes, where our world changes when we begin to build Jesus-first families. We do that by leading the way as husbands, as wives, as kids, as parents to show respect to the other people in our family for 
what you're doing in their lives, for what you've called them to be, for how you've created them, and for our role in developing them into who you've called them to be. So Lord, we give you this question as we sing this song in closing. I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom to know how to show and how to communicate respect to each member of our individual families. And we ask, Father, that you would give us the help to do that as we desire to build Jesus' first families. We pray in your son's name. Amen.